Shall we pray? Father in heaven, indeed this is your world, made by your hands, made by the word itself breathed. Indeed all creation is to sing glory, worthy unto Christ. We long for the coming of Christ when that indeed will be the reality. All things will be made right and the creation will sing glory to Christ. Even now you have revealed yourself to us in the book of nature. And yet even more clearly we see you in the scriptures. As we open the scriptures now, might we uh, see Christ. Give us the eye of faith to see him, the hands of faith to receive him the ear of faith to hear him. And may we taste and see that he is good. Amen. There's a, a, I won't name it because I don't know if I can remember the name actually now that I'm standing here. There's an old 19, late 50s, early 60s um, spy show from Great Britain. It was, it started out being about 30 minutes long. Uh, and then they Americanized it and they made it 60 minutes long. It was too short for the Americans, which I, I kind of find kind of backwards, kind of odd in a way. I, I must admit, though, that I appreciate the shorter version. The shorter versions of the, of the series move more quickly. I mean, yeah, you make a few leaps, uh, obviously, in character development or even in the plot. But you get to the point, you get the story, and, and it's done. Uh, now, in, in my life, I don't always have an hour, you know, to do something like this. So 30, 25 minutes or so is, is just kind of the right amount of time. Of course, then now you have these epic films, like three hours long, or the extended versions, you know, and watch all six of them back to back, and you're like, wow, you got a whole day taken there. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels. And Mark is, is about action. He is about moving the story forward, advancing it forward. I, I don't believe that Mark is a condensed version of Matthew, for example. I think, I think Mark is its own gospel, inspired and, and written, uh, Focusing on the actions of Jesus. Indeed, Jesus is there and he's teaching. But the emphasis is on his works more than on the words. Matthew and Luke include the discourses, quite significant, lengthy discourses. And Mark is about action. This is what Jesus has done to be the servant of God, to be the Savior of the world. And he's writing to a Roman audience. And so it all makes sense that he would keep it moving. In fact, he uses the word, maybe you picked up on it, it's used once or twice in the reading from this morning, the word immediately. I think he used it twice in, in our passage already. He uses that word immediately 42 times in this gospel compared to Matthew uses it seven and Luke uses it one. Like Mark, Mark is presenting a Jesus that is one of urgency, one of intentionality, one that is just keeps on going. This is the story of Jesus as Mark would reveal it to us. And Mark is writing to encourage the church, probably the church at Rome, that has been struggling and suffering 
uh, by per, from persecution. And he's writing to encourage that this is the Jesus. This is the history of our faith. This is the foundation of what we believe. And you can be sure of it. The key verse, um, depending on what Bible survey book you look at, but it, usually they come to this one. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The servant of the Lord. Uh, the sacrifice on our behalf, and yet sovereign. Uh, now perhaps uh, you, you were wondering, what in the world is this lion with wings uh, on the front title? Well, uh, in Ezekiel's uh, prophecy, you have four beasts, four living creatures that are presented. Revelation uh, alludes to these four same creatures. One has the face of a man, one the face of a lion, one the face of an ox, and the other the fa- uh, an eagle. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, someone got really twisted in their interpretation and identified one of the beasts with each of the four Gospels. That's not good Bible study methods. I'll just tell you that's, that's not good Bible study methods. However, it's stuck with Christian tradition. And so Mark is the one that's depicted as the lion with the wings and the courageous uh, king of beasts, so to speak, uh, is this Mark, the sovereign Lord and the servant are these concepts that come together uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take Mark from now, and uh, the plan is through Holy Week. Uh, Mark pretty much fits that time frame pretty well. And unless something else happens, I think we'll be able to keep that pace. But I thought, if Mark is about keeping it going, then I better not just prolong the whole series in Mark. We better keep it going. So we're going to take larger units, and you know that this will be indeed a personal challenge. It'll be my PR, my personal record. Um, So, verses 1 to 13 were well read for us already. There's three primary scenes that are here, and each of them have a reference to the Holy Spirit. They're also bracketed by this concept of being in the wilderness, Starts out with the one calling in the wilderness, and it has Jesus in the wilderness himself. This holds this unit together, the geographical unit, as well as its content. But there's witnesses to who Jesus is. And Mark gives us um, insight right away into who Jesus is. Insight that as readers we get that the characters throughout the rest of the gospel, other than Jesus himself, have no clue that this is who he is and this is what's happened. But Mark tells us right away, this is Jesus. He's the Christ and he's the Son of God. You know, there's other events that happen, like, like the situation in the wilderness, the temptation, like who was there? Who's there to report it? Nobody! Right? So Mark gives us, Mark gives us insider information about the character and the nature of Christ. Four witnesses we'll look at this morning. The first is the evangelist himself, verse 1. In, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Mark gives this declaration of who Jesus is. This is his good news. Back in the fall, we talked about what the good news is. The good news is that Jesus wins. Jesus is the victor over sin and death. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the good news. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, and the sending of the Holy Spirit is good news for his people. And Mark says, here's the beginning of it. Here's how it all started. It's a unique word for beginning. It's not the same that John uses. It's not the same that uh, Genesis 1 would use. But it is indeed the beginning marker point of this gospel, this good news of Jesus, who, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. Now you'll notice right away it doesn't say who the author is, does it? It doesn't start out like one of the epistles, Mark to the churches of Rome. How do we know, why, why do we call it the gospel according to Mark? Well, um, a few little indicators of evidence. And they go back really to the really early church. About 100, 115, a guy named Papias wrote commentary and said, we, we know that Mark was the interpreter of Peter. And he wrote this down in the gospel. So from the, Jesus' life is around 30, 33 the year 3033 and 3233, not 3033. I'm messed up. I'm, what time zone am I in? I don't know. Um, just 30, no 100, no 1000, just the year 30 to 33. And within 70 to 80 years, this account uh, is documented as having been written by Mark, who was a, a colleague of Peter. And Mark, Mark had been around for quite a while. In fact, it's thought that he was one of the 70 that Jesus commissioned to go out. And it's, it's Mark's mother's house, Mary, where that first prayer meeting in the book of Acts is, and they're praying for Peter's release. That's Mark's mom's house where this is all taking place. Mark is a cousin of Barnabas, and Mark goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and somewhere along the way, don't know why, he decides to, to leave the mission and to go back. Maybe he had some bad water. Maybe, maybe he ate something. Maybe he's homesick. We, we don't know. We don't know positively or negatively. Now, it caused a bit of a, of a wrinkle for Paul. Paul's like, Get it. don't bring him back. But by the end of Paul's life, he's writing, he's writing to Timothy. He says, bring Mark with you. Now that's, that's got to be encouragement for most of us. Like, you know, there were times, I suppose, over the last two weeks when we wish we were home. He ain't going to get there very quickly. It can resonate, you know, with, with Mark being away and, and gone and who knows for what. And again, we're assuming. We don't know why he went and left the mission, but he did. Paul wasn't pleased. That we know. Barnabas, maybe just out of 
cousinly love or, or maybe out of maturity or, or maybe understanding the circumstances. Not, it's okay. We'll bring Mark again another time. It actually caused two then missionary journeys later on. Barnabas went on one and Paul went on another. But here's Mark. And uh, other evidence could go into this. There's this embarrassing moment uh, in, in Mark chapter 14, which has nothing to do with the narrative, with the story. It's just extra thrown in there that some guy ran away as Jesus was arrested without his robe on. Like, they tore it off him and he just kept on running. Like, well, who would put that in there and why would, why would that be a historical piece of information? Other than, who would, who would know this? The guy who happened to, right? He wouldn't forget it. Why he decided to share it, have no clue. Except maybe to let us know that Mark would be the author. A buddy of the apostles. Uh, indeed, probably one who had been sent out by Jesus uh, in ministry already. Mark tells us that this is Christ, the anointed one. And this is the Son of God. He just states it. Doesn't unpack it. This is the truth. It's kind of like our song. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and He died for me. The Bible says it. And we ought to be satisfied with the Word of God. Indeed, John would explain to us that when Jesus himself declared to be the Son of God, that the religious leaders around wanted to kill him for saying such things because they knew that he was equating himself with God. To be the Son is not a biological term, primarily. It is a relational term, no doubt. But it is a title. If you look at Son in the Old Testament, the, son, the, the King is the Son of God. It's, it's an honorific title of high esteem. And, and here to be the Son of God is to equate yourself with God. He's divine. He's divine. He's of godly distinction. He's of royal distinction. In fact, by the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, the Roman centurion who's observing and watching all of this crucifixion of Jesus going on in the thunder and the darkness. And he says, truly this was the Son of God. Those declarations bracket the Gospel. Chapter 1 and chapter 15. He is indeed the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. The perfect Son of God. Now again, just remind ourselves of the encouragement. Here's Mark. Like, the biographer, the official biographer of Jesus. Here's Mark who moved from, from whatever, leaving the mission journey of, in the first place to a restoration with Paul, reconciliation with Paul, and now documenting historically the faith that we believe. That's how God works. He works through our weaknesses. He works through our 
perceived failures. He works through our foibles. He works through our naivete and accomplishes his purpose. And if there can be this kind of restoration for a mark, you and I can be encouraged when we have our foibles along the way. God has a purpose and a plan and he moves us forward in the greatness of his kingdom. Well, this uh, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, can uh, be identified by the fish. You, know, you see the fish and you wonder what in the world do Christians do with a fish? You see it on bumper stickers, I, you know, maybe not as much anymore. Once in a while you'll see a fish being eaten by another fish with feet. There's a battle, isn't there? A battle between worldly, secular, evolutionary theory and the Christian faith. Well, the early church would use the fish as to identify who were Christians. Uh, if you go get a chance, which is unlikely in the near future, to go to Israel uh, and do see some of the archaeological digs, you'll see a house that will have a fish engraved uh, in the doorpost and um, people would use the fish symbol in, in, the, in the ground to identify when they greet one another and it, it was a symbol, I'm a Christian. Um, well, you're thinking, why? Well, the word fish is ichthus. That sound great? No wonder Nancy doesn't like fish. This is the name itself, ichthus. Ich, ichthus. It's iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma, or I X T H U S. Ichthus. To put it in just you know, kind of English, kind of way of talking. Ichthus. The iota. There's no J in Greek. Maybe you know you learned that from your Latin lessons with Indiana Jones. There's no J in Latin. There's no J in Greek. It's an I. Io, Jesus, Jesus, the word Jesus. Christos, the X, is not an X. It's a key. And it's the first letter of the title Christ. So, by the way, we just came out of the Christmas season and, and people get kind of rankled with the Xmas thing. Don't worry about it. It actually is the first letter of the word Christ. That's the key. And use it. Redeem it. Take it back. The key is the first letter of Christ. The theta, or the TH sound, is the first letter of the word God. Theos. Theology. Weos, the U, the Upsilon, is the first letter for the word son. Upsilon. Weos. Think of a, a wee one. Is your weos, your little son. And then the sigma, at the end of, uh, of the Greek, it's always this big round S like we know it. And it means, it stands for the word Savior. The first letter, soter. Savior. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now, four of them are right here in Mark's Gospel, right? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. We just need to add the S at the end, Savior, and we've got the fish. 
Now, that has not a lot to do with the Gospel of Mark, but it's part of our history. It's part of who we are as, as Christians, going way back to these early centuries, early years of our faith. And when now you see the fish, you know it means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And here Mark makes a very similar uh, acclamation, confession of faith, doesn't he? Now, we just sang the song, I have, you know, I need no device, I need no creed, I need no argument. The ichthus is a device, isn't it? It is a creed. This is what we believe. The song doesn't mean we don't hold to those things, but we do hold to the primacy of Scripture. Over everything else is the Word of God. Now, the witness goes on. Next is the witness of the prophets. And uh, this is preparing the way for Jesus. Verses 2 to 8. Let me read these again for us. It's written in Isaiah, uh, the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. I'll prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 which begins an entire new section in the book of Isaiah. And here's the application. John. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The next witness is Scripture, the prophets in particular. The beginning of the Gospel comes as it is written. It's been prophesied, it's been proclaimed, and the beginning of the Gospel comes as it is written. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of the Scriptures, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God promised that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And over and again, that prophecy is renewed and reminded for us. And now the culminating prophet is John himself. And he's a wilderness man. He's in the vein of Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. They dressed the same way. They looked the same way. They smell the same way. They eat the same way. In fact, it's the uniform of the prophets. In the prophet Zechariah chapter 13 verse 4, there's a reference to the prophets that wear a hairy garment. Why it's the, exactly the uniform? Well, that's a matter of discussion. Camel's hair. I should have wore my camel hair jacket this morning. But it's really warm, even in the winter. Now, you're thinking, like, was, was John the Baptist, like, really well decked out? Well, maybe, maybe not. The, the camel has a top side and an underneath. And the hair grows different on the top as opposed to underneath. And the hair on top is coarser. 
you know, it takes all the brunt of the environment and climate. And underneath the underbelly is a little bit finer and softer and they take that and, and make a finer fabric. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, talks about the prophets who came who were dressed in skins. So it's quite possible that it wasn't just a fabric kind of thing like a, like a sackcloth made out of hair, the, the bristly kind of hair on the camel's back. Could be like a sackcloth kind of thing. Could be that it was an animal skin kind of thing, as would be alluded in Hebrews 11. Whatever. The symbol seems to be one of that sackcloth kind of remembrance. A garment of hair. A cloth made of coarser hair. And it was the picture of the need for repentance. So not only was John's verbal message one of repent and confess your sins... But his entire demeanor, the way he lived his life, was the message. A continual, daily repentance. And he dressed that way as, as if he were in sackcloth and ashes. And he's calling his people to repentance and confession. Not only his words, not only his dress, but his location also is a reminder and a call for the people to repent. What does a wilderness have to do? We went through the book of Exodus last year. And it was the people of God that were called out of Egypt to the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness they were tested. It was in the wilderness they rebelled against the Lord. And to come back to the Jordan River where they had crossed their forefathers had crossed into the promised land. For John to be there at the Jordan and to call the people back to the Jordan and to come back through the waters of the Jordan and start over again in newness of life. He's calling the people to repent, to turn away from the materialism and secularism of the day, the lavishness of the day, to come away from the world and be the people of God like God had called them to be. Well, that's the picture that's going on here, and this is what John is doing. And with a story, with a message like that, you're like, what kind of response would he get? Got a great response. It says that they're all going out. All Israel, all Jerusalem, are going out to in verse 5. The whole country! I'm sure that it's hyperbole, right? But, it, it, you know, as... It's a warning for us. Uh, Sterling was sharing with us um, somewhere over the last two weeks. Some of you know his background and, and story. Others, others probably don't. So Sterling is a third generation missionary in the continent of Africa. His father, Dr. Sterling, Dr. Foster, um, we knew and had been to Grace a couple of times. 
But we didn't support Dr. Foster. We did support Dr. Foster's dad back in the 30s. The first Foster went out there. I mean, we're, you know, Africa in the 1930s, like this is the real pioneer mission stuff. I can't imagine because we were there in 2024 and it's still pretty much pioneer life. It, you're on the frontier. And we drove hours from the Angolan border to get to the ranch. Hours. It was only two kilometers. Not, it was a little bit longer than that. It, it was hours of back and forth and up and down. And no church, no gospel witness. Now, Sterling remember his, his dad and talking about his dad, grandpa, going into a, a village and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and he'd get a response. He'd ask, he, who would like to receive Jesus as their Savior? He could speak the language. They, he was one they, they really did call Buana. Grandpa Foster. And, and he'd get this response. And like villages were coming to Christ. But a month down the road, he'd notice their lives haven't changed. They're still caught in their animism. They're still caught in the darkness. And their lifestyle hasn't changed. There's no fruit of repentance. And as he got to know the culture better, he realized that as a people group, they didn't want to dishonor or disrespect the messenger. If he came all this way to tell us something, then we should honor him and accept it. That's all that was going on. That's all that they were doing. Now, friends, we, we need to be wise with that kind of presentation of the story of Christ, of the gospel. And those kinds of mass presentations might be helpful and might be good, but they might not be. It might just cause confusion and delay uh, of the whole maturity and sanctification issue. Are they really saved? John has all these people coming out. All the country. All Jerusalem. Here they come. But are they really changed? Not, not only have they heard the message and been baptized in the water, but when the Jesus comes, when the Christ comes and He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, are these those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit? to newness of life, leaving the old behind and living the new life in Christ. Here's the witness of the prophets and a warning for us about the message. He called the people to repentance and this is a reminder for the people that there is another exodus that's needed. Not just this physical one coming out of Egypt and into, into the promised land, but one of the heart and of the mind. One that comes out of the world and follows Jesus. His content is Christ. His content is the Holy Spirit. And he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, this John, since his mother's womb. Luke chapter 1, we read that a few weeks ago, didn't we? He's been set apart. He embodies the message. He, 
John has a lifestyle evangelism. People looked at him, said, well, he's different. A lot of people probably went out, he's different, he's weird. Let's go see him. Let's go see this madman in the desert. Now, we need a lifestyle evangelism. Not that we need to be like insane people. Sometimes we bring the onus on ourselves for the way we behave and the way we act. And we ought not. But our lives ought to be different. We ought to be distinct. And, and to a point where we're so morally and ethically holy and devoted unto God that guess what? They're going to say, you're crazy. They are. Not only you're crazy, you're dangerous. You're not only crazy, you're not only dangerous, you're wicked. If we hold to the truths that we hold, we hold to the morals and ethics of the gospel, they call that wrong. They call that wickedness these days. So just be ready. Be prepared. Be a John. And have a lifestyle that is evangelistic. Yes, proclaiming the word of Christ when you can, but certainly living it. Going forth and living it. The way of Christ. Well, the Godhead comes and also brings testimony. Verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately, there's our word, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, if John preached confession and repentance of sin and Jesus is the perfect Son of God, then why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why did I ask that? Even at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is identifying with his people. He's fulfilling all righteousness, one of the other gospels would say. This is right. It's right to do this. He's fulfilling the will of God. And he's identifying with the people. Even, even in his life, He's identifying with sinners. We certainly glory and elevate uh, Christ in his death and his burial in the place of sinners. And rightly so. Nothing to detract from it. As, as fundamentalists, as, as evangelicals, I think we have forgotten a bit about the life of Christ that is also in our place. He is the perfect substitute, not only in his death, but also in his life. And he has fulfilled all righteousness, a perfect obedience that can be yours when you are found to be in him. So he's identifying with his people as their substitute from beginning to end. And we ought to appreciate his perfect righteousness. But it's also an initiation. 
Jesus is about 30 years old. It's about 30 years old that the, the priest would begin his public service in the temple. Back in the old covenant. And before the priest would go through the whole ordination rite, he'd be washed. His body would be cleansed as he would go into this ordination rite. And that's a picture of baptism. Baptism is a kind of public ordination ceremony. And Jesus, the great high priest, will begin his public ministry. And he is the high priest of God on behalf of his people. But not only this, but it is the anointing. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, fills him. And the ministry and life that Jesus lived was done in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And here you have the Father, the voice from heaven, my Son, my beloved one, with you I am well pleased. How personal. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit testifying and empowering and enabling him. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is distinctively Christian. We must hold this. J.C. Ryle, in his notes, devotional notes on the Gospel of Mark, he, he makes an application, says, if, if you've been baptized in Christ by His Spirit, then the same voice of the Father, when He looks upon you, can say, with you, I am well pleased. If you're in Christ, you belong to God. And that life that Christ lived was for you. The death He died was for you. The resurrection in which He was raised was for you. And if you're in Christ, then God looks upon you and says, with you, I am well pleased. Oh, we have our foibles like a mark. But God restores us, reconciles us, renews us. And He says, with you, I am well pleased because you're in My Son. You belong to My Son. And I'm pleased. Well, this, this is a, the eternal and infinite love of the Father for the Son as it's expressed. The final, tem, uh, final witness is that, we'll just say, of the angels. Verses 12 to 13. The good angels and the bad angels testify that Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Can you see this? The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and Jesus is immediately compelled to go into the wilderness. To go into Satan's territory. This is, this is anti-Eden. The wilderness. This is the opposite of garden. This is wilderness. This is the realm of Satan. The wild animals are there. In, in our Mideastern worldview, we're understanding... It's the realm of the devil. And the animals are in it with him. When, when we got to 
Windhoek and we drove and we finally uh, the next day got to Etosha National Park and we drove through Etosha and we'll, we'll share some of that when we get there but it's a national park with all the, the wild animals from the birds uh, to the lions to the leopards this, this lioness came like really close to the car don't get out of the car and there's a watering hole, and she's like looking the whole thing in the watering hole. And she finally gets herself into the water where she can see us and drink at the same time. We, she was so close, you could actually hear her lapping the water. That's scary. And she had blood on her belly. She had just eaten something, and she was really thirsty. Boy, was she thirsty. She's there a long time. Well, from there, you know, we see other stuff. And from there we drive. And then the next, I don't know, next day or the next day, whatever. It took forever to get to the ranch. And we finally get there and we, we collapse in the bungalow, Nancy and I. And the windows are open. And all the noises of the creatures out there in the dark. <laughs> wasn't it loud? By the last day, it wasn't quite as loud for some reason. But that first night, all the noises of whatever they were, birds or bugs or beasts, I don't know. Did you sleep? <laughs> Not the first night. So Jesus is in the wilderness. And we know that he's there 40 days and he's fasting. And we probably emphasize the fasting part, but... Mark emphasizes not so much that, but the fact that he's there in the wild, among the wild beasts. He doesn't have a safari tent. He doesn't have a, a camper. He's just out there, vulnerable to the wild beasts that do the bidding of their wild master. I was with the kids, I got to hurry up. I was with the kids years ago in our backyard, camping in a tent. And I woke up in the middle of the night, there was this noise. That well, it was worse than that. That sounded more like a cow. <laughs> uh, what, what in the world is this? I opened and there's a deer right there, <laughs> snorting at the tent. Get this tent out of my domain. That's scary. That's just a, that was just a doe. Jesus is out there. He's out there in the wilderness. One note for us that, that we need in Western American churchianity. Don't be deceived into thinking that if God is with me and God is in it, everything's going to be great. That's the lie of the devil. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. God did this. It's part of the plan. It's warfare. When we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's invasion language. Jesus goes into the lair 
of the devil. He go, takes the frontal assault by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he invades the darkness. And he does battle with the devil. And he overcomes. For you. For me. He has overcome. And this is good news. The way of the Spirit is in the wilderness. And the way of the Spirit is warfare. Satan's goal ultimately was to get Jesus not to suffer. Not to suffer. And isn't that the temptation we face too? Anything and everything to avoid suffering. We want the comfort. Reminds me of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism question number one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Electricity? The retirement plan? The trips? What is your only comfort in life and in death? In the beginning of the question is a beautiful question. It's worth memorizing that I belong body and soul in life and in death not to myself but to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ who at the cost of His own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. And it goes on talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. What is your comfort in life and in death. It says here that, Je that Jesus was ministered to by the angels. We're assuming those are the good ones. Ministering to him. The word ministry here is, is deacon, diaconate, diacon diaconeo, the verb form of it. You, you deacons and deaconesses, you're angels of mercy. They were ministering to Jesus. And Mark doesn't go into the temptations. Matthew and Luke both describe the three temptations. And Jesus responds each time with a verse from Deuteronomy. Like, this really is the second exodus. And he's the victory over all sin and temptation. Jesus did not get ahead of the Father. You know, one of the temptations, one of the temptations, Satan says, hey, throw yourself down off the, off the pinnacle and well, the angels will catch you. Remember that verse in Psalms? And Jesus wouldn't do it. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. He didn't get ahead of the Father, but guess what? When he waited for the Lord, the angels did their ministry. Don't get ahead of God. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. His timing and His way. And He will rescue and redeem. No, probably not the way you thought. But He will be faithful. This is Christ. These witnesses attest to us of Him. The anointed one of God, the Son of God. And we begin our journey to learn more of Him. So, God, we come now. We thank you for this truth that is revealed to us. We thank you for the promise that we too have the victory 
in Jesus Christ. And that you, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under our feet. And we thank you we have a great high priest who has gone before us and endured the wilderness, endured the temptation, every temptation, and yet without sin. So, increase our confidence and our courage that we would draw near to you, your throne of grace, and we would find mercy. That we would call upon you and we would wait upon you for your goodness and your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, this evening, we'll be meeting again in the chapel, and uh, Mr. Gent has another series in Colossians for us this evening. Um, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. We'll be celebrating communion, the Lord's table together. Uh, next Sunday will also be the last Sunday that Chad Naper will be with us. Chad Naper received a call to Wayland Calvary Bible Church down in Wayland, and um, they'll be with us this Sunday and next Sunday. So you'll want to be sure to greet them and, and uh, give their congratulations and probably say some goodbyes. Next Sunday, we'll have an opportunity to pray with them and for them and send them off into ministry. On the 11th, then, will be his first Sunday and in his installation down there at Wayland Calvary. And uh, so with that, let's stand together and let's receive the blessing of the Lord as we go. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all the saints in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.